the people who create technology don't like to be disrupted themselves, which is the irony of it, isn't it? It's like the, the biggest paradox out there is that the people who develop technology, who are the disruptors, don't like change. You're listening to KBcast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Arun Vishwanath, who's the founder and the chief technologist from, from Avant Research Group. Now, today, we're talking about your newly published book, The Weakest Link. We will be linking uh, in the show notes on where you can buy the book. If you are based in the United States, I think you get an additional discount. Uh, but for people who are not based in the United States, we will also put that link in as well. So, Arun, thanks for joining. Hey, Carissa, it's great to be here. Very excited to talk to you. So for those who are unfamiliar with your book, talk to me a little bit more about what you wrote about. And uh, also I want to understand from you, what was the genesis behind it? All right. So the book basically deals with social engineering, right? And uh, as, as everybody knows, I mean, this is potentially the biggest factor out there when it comes to cyber attacks. So whenever we talk about cyber attacks, you know, invariably when it is targeting users, it's a social engineering attack. And social engineering is a very broad vector. So it encompasses messaging, email, telephony. So it's wishing, phishing, social media. It's pretty much, you know, every modality that you can find on the internet is something a social engineering, a social engineer can target. Um, and so what the book basically does, it, it allows an IT person, organization, just any person who's interested in security to prospectively examine who is at risk from social engineering by how much of a risk they are and why. It answers three important questions, right? Who is at risk? Which is, who are the weak links in the organizational security? Who are the strong links? It's a question we don't really have an answer to yet. The book provides that answer. It tells you by how much of a risk they are. That is, you know, can we quantify the likelihood of these individuals letting a social engineering, social engineer penetrate the system? And finally, why are they Right? What's the reason why this individual, if it's you or I or anyone in our audience, why are they at risk? Is it something they do? Is it something, some way in which they think? Or is it something that they do technically? So is it a behavior? Is it a technology? Is it a cognitive process? But what the book does, it allows you to do all of this. So that's why it's called The Weakest Link, How to Diagnose, Detect, and Defend Against Social Engineering. So that's the that's the, the synopsis of the book. So did you just wake up one day saying, I'm just going to write a book and it's going to be called The Weakest Link? Or how did you sort of come to the conclusion? Pretty much, right? Um, you know, I wish that was how it was. But well, I'm a cognitive behavioral scientist by training. I spent a good 20 years of my career as an academic social scientist, tenured professor, researching users, technology users, and basically studying how people use technology, why people use technology. And, and the way in which you could get them to do things using technology uh, that they might not even think of doing, right? Um, and about a decade or so ago, when I was in the middle of studying this, um, we received in my university, we received one of the first, back then, social engineering spear phishing attacks. Uh, this was basically an email that's become all too common right now, which was an email asking all the students in the university to change their password. Um, and... Um, when I went back to the IT department and said, hey, you know who sent this? The answer was no. Nobody knew who sent it and nobody really cared why that was sent. And nobody did anything about it. So we don't know how many people changed their passwords. We don't know how many people fell for that attack. And given what I was studying, I recognized something in it. Like, hey, here's a bad guy trying to do exactly what I was trying to do uh, for different purposes. And so that became the area that I started exploring in my research. And, and what started then, almost a decade plus ago, led to where we are with the book. And, and as I evolved with the research, the attack started. And, and if, if you remember back in about 2014, um, November 2014, we had this massive attack on Sony Pictures in the United States. Uh, and when that attack happened, I was already about five or six years into doing these attacks on a limited basis using different subject pools. And studying them. So when I saw what had happened with Sony Pictures, I knew exactly what the vector was. And I, you know, at that time reached out to CNN and I said, hey, you know, this is something I've been studying for almost a decade by then. Uh, would you really like to know what these guys are doing and what's coming next? And, you know, that started a, a process of writing in the media that eventually left to the book that was today. 
Well, that's awesome. I think that that's a really great sort of journey. And I did see that uh, school attack down in uh, Los Angeles as well recently. So, okay, so there's a couple of things that are coming up in my mind. But before we do that, I want to speak to you about in cyber, we often say human beings are the weakest link. Uh, it seems to be uh, a common phraseology that we use in this space. But then it sort of, it, it, it appears in my mind that many aren't really then taking a step back and understanding human beings, how they work, what drives them, et cetera. And with your background, especially uh, being a social scientist for, for two decades, why do you think this is the case? And I guess uh, a second point to that, something that you just spoke uh, about before, Arun, was you said no one cared about the attack and then no one did anything about it, which sort of leads into my question, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's still the case, right? I mean, it's changing, but it's a, it's, it's a very important thing to think about, which is why don't we study? Why don't we have answers to the question of why do people fall for social engineering attacks? But what's been going on for the last like 20 years? Uh, to, to give you some perspective on it, one of the first social engineering attacks, spear phishing attacks that all took common now came out in 1996 in AOL. And back when that attack happened, AOL basically emailed all the users and told them to be more careful. Fast forward to 2022, and we're doing exactly the same thing. Uh, they train their users. We're still training users. And we've been doing security awareness months since 2004, and we're still doing it. And just last month, uh, two months ago, Microsoft was hacked by Spearfisher. So something's not right. We've been ignoring something. Something's not working. And why is that? And, and part of the reason for that is, uh, you know, technology, the entire cybersecurity world, world of technology is dominated by a different paradigm, right? It's a paradigm that's run by people who are engineers. It's an engineering paradigm. Uh, and the engineering paradigm has given us great technology, great phones, great tech. But the engineering paradigm is also something that looks at users as just a small little component in the larger scheme of technology. And so the interest is not in studying users, but the interest is in adding technology to fight a problem in technology. You know, so what they're trying to do is make more endpoint security. And the focus has been on endpoint security, has been on vendors, has been on developing better technology, hoping that, you know, when we have enough technology, the user will become somehow safe. And, you know, as the same goes, you know, you can make, you know, a weapon as safe as you want, but even a kitchen knife in the hands of a madman can be very legal. The technology can only do that much. You need to study people. You need to understand that end user. And we have not done that. We've not spent the time doing it. And like I said, it's been close to 20 plus years. Two decades is a lifetime when it comes to technology, right? It's, it's more than a few lifetimes when it comes to technology. We're still doing the same thing we did in 1996. Mm. And we're still falling for the same attacks. And now, mind you, the attacks that happened on Microsoft, on NVIDIA, on Samsung in February of this year, uh, all of these are major tech company on Okta, which is an yeah, identity management company at the forefront of cybersecurity. Microsoft, which is known to be very secure when it comes to, you know, where it takes cybersecurity very seriously. Every one of them got hacked in February of this year. And the best part is that they were all hacked by a bunch of teenagers using social engineering. Nothing has changed. Mm. And I say nothing has changed because... Teenagers have been hacking and using social engineering from the days of AOL. Yeah, interesting points. And this is where it gets, uh, this is where people <laughs> get divided a little bit because you, you are right. We've been two decades, nothing's really changed. I mean, I've been sitting there speaking to people like yourself on the show, in the community, that we're just trying to create band aids over top of people with technology. But then when you speak to perhaps someone who's on the engineering side, they're like, oh, but uh, this is the way it's got to be. Or well, they don't give the respect to the people that understand people. So how do we sort of, how do we work together? Like effectively we've got, let's call it the non-tech side and the technical side. This is, you know, for argument's sake. They're, each, they're, they're equally trying to do the same thing, but they're not really working together. So how do we get better or alignment from your perspective and with your research? Let's understand the paradigm here, right? Um, See, what I've been calling for, and there's an article that I'm, I've written that's coming out next week that also talks about the same thing, is, is putting people first, right? I'm talking about inverting the existing paradigm, right? So what's the existing paradigm? The existing paradigm is to create a product and to go out there and test it on people, right? That's how technology is developed, right? You develop a smartphone and then you go out there and 
that presented to people. It's no different than how you develop a new recipe when you're in Starbucks or when you're at McDonald's, right? Because you can't imagine products. It makes sense, right? You can't imagine an interface. You have to see it. So we've used the same paradigm for developing security technology. We have said, here's a security technology, or here's a security awareness program, or here's a security certification. Now go use it, or let's test it on people. The problem is, uh, security is not something you need to imagine, like a, like a cup of coffee at Starbucks, or a new recipe, a new frappuccino. It's something that's layered on top of an existing behavior. So when we talk of social engineering coming in through messaging, messaging is something people already do. When it comes in through phone or through an email, email is something people already have. It's like, you're not trying to teach people how to imagine a car. You're trying to teach them how to wear a seatbelt. So you have to build it around the user. So what we need to do is kind of invert that paradigm when it comes to cybersecurity. We got to start with the people first, rather than putting people as just another input in the larger cycle of interface and hardware and software. And, and when, you, when you invert that paradigm, what you basically do is you say, okay, why are people vulnerable? Or what is it that people are doing that doesn't work? Or what is it that they're doing that does work? Diagnose the problem and build security around it. We did that with seatbelts. That's how seatbelts were devised, designed. They weren't designed first and then as tested on people. They were designed with people in mind from the get-go. And they were designed in Buffalo, New York, where I am at. And so the, the, the idea is if you invert that paradigm, you basically start incorporating user inputs and the study of people all throughout the security cycle, rather than it just being something that is you know, added in the end. And when you do that, you come up with a holistic product that actually works from the first day off. So this could be a technical solution, this could be an awareness solution, uh, and this could be a combination of both. And that's how you change this paradigm. Okay, so I'm with you. I totally hear what you're saying. How do we start with people first? Like if someone's listening to this saying, oh, actually, I'm not putting people first. Like what do we do? Well, the first point of this is we have to change the paradigm, right? Uh, we have to appreciate that what we're doing right now doesn't work, right? That's your first step. Awareness is the first step. But do you think people have resigned themselves to the fact that it's not working? Or do you think that they think it works still in your experience? I think people think it's going to work eventually. Right. Which is why we're still doing awareness training, you know, 22 years later. So when you say eventually, so if you and I speak again in 20, 2050, potentially, is eventually still in that cycle? Yeah, well, we will be doing the exact same thing because we already know it doesn't work. So let's take security awareness training as a concept, right? As a solution, which is called a solution, but really it's a product. Well, let's say it's a solution. Everybody right now, every... Corporate out there implements some form of security awareness training. Every academic study has shown that it doesn't work. And if it does work, it has a very short-term impact. Yet everybody does it. In fact, we spent a whole month in October doing just security awareness. And we've been doing the same thing, even though we know it doesn't work. So the first step is to say, okay, it doesn't work. Because unless you're honest with yourself, it's like the AA, right? Unless you come out and say, hey, you know what? I got a problem. You're not going to deal with it. Unfortunately, we haven't even gotten to that first step. That's your first step. The first step is saying, hey, this is not working. The next step is to say, okay, why is it not working? How, what's happening here? Is it the product? As in, is it the solution? Or is it something in the way in which the user is orienting to the technology? That's the problem. That's your diagnostic stage. Once you do the diagnostic stage, then you have the answers. And the diagnostic stage is not a black box. Humans are not a black box. In fact, the answers to why people fall for social engineering, for why people are not secure or not resilient, are already there. The answers are, in fact, in my book. I explain the, the cognitive psychology and the behavioral psychology behind human vulnerability to social engineering, to basically all forms of attacks out there that target users. And I also give you the diagnostic approach, and it's not complicated. I mean, it's actually less complicated than going to the doctor and getting your blood pressure checked. It's actually a very simple process. And so if you could do the simple process, and it's essentially boils down to asking a few questions after you do a pen test, not any pen test, but a certain form of a pen test, and how you do it is in my book. Once you do that, you can actually estimate, you can project their risk, and you can project why they're at risk, and you can ex I mean, explain why they're at risk, and then you can build defenses around it. And to the last point, the defenses don't always have to be more training. 
Because right now, what's happened is we we begin with this idea that training is the solution. And then we end up with training telling us that, hey, we need more training. And then it's a cycle that's been going on for the last two decades. Okay. So what I'm, okay, you make great points. I'm just trying to distill this down in my mind and just map it out. So is what you're saying is we don't really need security awareness training? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what we're doing as security awareness training is limited and flawed. Right. So, so you're saying the method, the method we're doing. Yeah. So, so there's, let's talk about that, right? Why don't we talk about that? So what are the issues with how we approach social engineering today? Right? There are five issues with it. Let's talk about that. The first is, uh, what is security awareness? Right? There's no standard for what is security awareness. What is good? There's really no standard for when it has happened. When are people security aware? Ask any security awareness company, any professional who does security awareness. Hey, what would happen when everybody is security aware? Would everybody be protected? So have you asked someone that though? Like, hey, what happens when your whole company of 50,000 people are security aware? And what do people say? Well, it, well, they can be security. There'll always be a weak link. There'll always be someone who's not security aware. Well, then the question is, what's the objective of security awareness? Well, we don't know. What, is, what does it mean? What does security awareness mean? Does it mean you're knowledgeable? Or does it mean you just know? By now, now you and I, we've traveled extensively. I've traveled extensively. I've gone to you know, Indonesia and given presentations, and people know about Nigerian fishing attacks there. Uh, I've gone, gone to you know, south, parts of South America and given talks on security awareness. And people know of Nigerian attacks there too. They, many of the people in the world might not be able to really effectively tell you, you know, what's in Nigeria or where Nigeria is on the map. But people's awareness is there of, of phishing attacks. So what is the goal of security awareness? Well, we don't really know. Uh, it, it can be, let's, hey, let's make everybody a computer scientist because that's too high a bar. And even if everybody becomes a computer scientist, let's not fool ourselves, those guys in Microsoft who fell for the phishing attack, those guys in NVIDIA, the guys in Samsung, many of them were also highly trained. Maybe they were even, some were even computer scientists who fell for phishing attack. So the first issue we have is there's no standard. There really is no standard for what it is and, and when it is achieved, what it's meant to achieve. We don't even know what it's meant to achieve, right? The second is security awareness is not a solution. It's a product, right? It's a product that comes with a package with a Firm. It's, it's vendor-driven. It's, it's a marketplace at work. No harm with that. But the problem with products is that products need to be sold and products lead to the sell of more products. So inherent to the product cycle is the idea that, hey, every time you use their product, if you don't need them anymore, uh, you're not going to be using them. So they keep coming back and giving you more and more training, which is how we came to what is called as the pen testing of which is, you know, we send a mock phishing test and we keep doing it. And every time somebody fails, you keep doing more of it, right? Which brings us to the next point. Um, invariably, somebody always fails. I've done these phishing tests in companies in various parts of the world, in Asia, in Europe, and North America. Somebody always falls for the test. There is a ceiling effect. What do I mean by ceiling effect? And there is a number after which you cannot get that number of people who fall for a pen test down. This happens all over the world. I know it happens in Australia too. So you have a third problem. The fourth problem you have is there's no standard for a test. We don't know how to make a pen test. Now, a lot of people say they do. Uh, and I've talked to companies that make pen tests. And many of them go and say, hey, you know what? We, we saw this attack and we came and created a test like it. Well, that's not, that's not something where you're preparing people. You're basically just following the hacker. That doesn't prepare people for what is coming. That prepares people for what has happened, right? And then the last problem is when you do a pen test and you get some data, no one can tell you why someone fell for that phishing test in the pen test. Is it because of something people did by mistake? Did they click on a link by mistake? Did they not think about something? Did they do it inadvertently? Did they do it deliberately? There's no way to tell. So if there's no way to tell in a pen test why someone falls, how can you explain to me when someone really falls for a real attack? If you can't even tell me in a simulated environment why an Arun or a Carissa or a John or a Jack fell for a phishing test, you can't tell me why. Is it a 
Is it a thought process? Is it a mistake? Is it deliberate? What was the thought behind it? Now, how can you tell me when someone falls, whether or not someone's going to fall for a real attack, which is kind of targeted or targeting me? Should we have these five problems, right? These are major issues. And we've got vendors and vendors and vendors out there doing this, but none of them can answer this. Now, now we answer all of this in the book, right? And the book addresses all of this, right? So, so, so that's, that's one of the things that the book kind of provides, right? What it does is, is it, the book is not a product, right? It's not trying to sell you a license. It shows you how to create a phishing test, right? Prospectively created, not just follow a hacker and copy their attack, but actually create a test. It shows you how to establish the test baseline so you understand how to quantify that test. It shows you how to measure risk, right? So it shows you how to measure, you know, Carissa's propensity to fall for that particular test. And then it explains why you fell. It explains the mind behind the machine, right? And so we try to address all of this using the science of cognition and behavior as the undercurrent of it. That's what this book does, right? So these are the problems and these are the solutions. That's what the weakest link does, the book. So in the book, you talk about that there just isn't a lot of human science in the study of human factors, but there is lots of data around software bugs, for example, that you've spoken about. So talk to me a little bit more about this, or does this go back to your engineering paradigm? Like we're so focused on looking at the bugs and because we've got engineers. That's right. It goes back to the engineering paradigm. And, and, and I'm a big uh, history buff, right? So I read a lot of history and, you know, the best example of paradigms comes from tea, you know? Um, so if you think about tea, you know, tea is consumed, UK people drink a lot of tea, India people drink a lot of tea. Um, and, you know, about the, the tea bag was invented around 1960. Uh, microwaves were invented in the 70s, all right? But tea bags could not be put in microwaves, even though people were using microwaves to warm up the water up until 2010, 2020. You know why? Because all the tea bags had staplers in them. They were stapled in. And it was only recently, in the last 10 years, that tea bags came without staples in them. See, this is a lock into a paradigm of doing something that you've been doing for 30, 40, 50 years. And this is precisely what's happening with this human factors approach in computing, right? The idea of human factors in computing, human factors is a term that people in security use a lot, but it's actually a term that comes from the days of machine operators. It's an industrial engineering term. It comes from the day when people used to work in factory floors and assembly lines, uh, where it didn't matter who the person was. We didn't study people, we studied productivity. And, and we trained people back then to basically increase their output. Uh, by basically doing what was called back then in the 1940s and 50s, time and motion stuff. Right? We, we used to study how quickly they could move to how much time they took to, you know, kick moving things down the, the assembly line in, in factories like Ford, Motor Company, Stamping Company. Uh, and, and that's the science approach of human factors that's been applied and taken into the world of security, where we really don't care about, the, we, we treat people as operators, right? We call them users. We really don't even call them people. We call them users. And, and then we don't study anything about them other than how they're clicking, how quickly they're clicking. So it's a time and motion kind of study. And that's all it is. And then we presume that that explains their motivation, their behavior, their thought, their feelings backwards, right? So you have so many different names or all these different computer bugs, right? Yeah, the man of bug, control flow bug, the shortened bug. But when it comes to people, there's human factors. There's no personality. There's no affectivity. There's no human cognition. There's no individuality. There's no motivation. None of that matters. And then you wonder why users continue, or people continue to be the weakest link. Because we have really not studied them. We've really not incorporated anything about them into the construction of the technology or the security technologies that are out there. So how do we get out of this rut? So we've spoken about the engineering paradigm. How do we move forward from this? Like, how, how do we get out of that? Because like you said, or else you and I are going to speak in 2050 and you're going to say, oh, the same thing's been going on the last 30 years, Carissa. Right. And, and, and like I said earlier, right, we have to flip that paradigm, right? We have to recognize that security technologies are not the same as computing technology. They're not the same, right? So uh, I use the analogy of the seatbelt, right? The seatbelt is a layer to an existing process. It's not the process. 
Seatbelts are not why you drive cars. Seatbelts are what you do when you drive cars. Security technologies are very similar. Security is something you layer on top of an existing process. That process in the user has to be incorporated into the design of the security technology. And that's where we have to begin. We have to incorporate the study of people into pretty much every walk of this. We have to begin by diagnosing the user, which means understanding what makes them move, what makes them do things. Is it thoughts? Is it behaviors? Is it actions? Is it feelings? What is it? Right. And the science of that already exists. It's not new. We've been studying people in cognitive science and behavioral science for the last hundred plus years. Right. We've been studying human psychology for hundred plus years. All we need to do is start incorporating. And, and that's the important thing. Let's start incorporating. We've got to flip that paradigm around. And the first part of flipping that paradigm is to, to accept that the current paradigm is flawed, insufficient, and it's not working. Otherwise, we can keep on doing this and going around in circles. Do you think people know it's flawed though? But again, it's like anything like, uh, for example, people that say, oh, I should lose weight. They probably know they're overweight, but they can be bothered getting to the gym, getting a trainer and all that. It's just easier to just sort of, you know, be complacent and just keep doing the same thing. Do you think there's a bit of that in there? Well, it's because uh, the way paradigms work is the way, you know, it's a lock-in. How does this lock-in happen? You know, you have people teaching people, right? It becomes a discipline. So, Engineers train other engineers who train other engineers who join the workforce and take that training with them. And so it kind of feeds itself. And that's how a lock-in exists for hundreds of years, right? It's a way of thinking. It, it socializes people into thinking about problems in a certain way, which is, you know, the teabag example, right? Uh, what is it that happened for 40 years where people were using microwaves and people were using, drinking tea? Almost 95%, 96% of the UK was drinking tea out of using tea bags. And about 80% of them had microwaves. But how come nobody put the two together and said, hey, wait a minute, why do we have these staples in every tea bag? Because you can't put the tea bag in the microwave. Because the lock-in, you were thinking about things a certain way, making machine tools a certain way, machining it a certain way. People were buying it and just doing the same thing over and over again in a completely different way. And that's how a lock-in happens, right? It can go on for hundreds of years until someone gets inside and disrupts it. And so this book and all what you're doing, what I'm doing, is this process of disruption, right? What we're saying is, hey, of course they don't. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. Which is why, you know, people like you and I are important, right? We live in the age of disruption. But technology is the disrupting tool. But the problem is when technology is the disrupting tool, the people who create technology don't like to be disrupted themselves, which is the irony of it, isn't it? It's like the, the biggest paradox out there is that the people who develop technology, who are the disruptors, don't like change. I mean, we see this over and over again, even with people who create some of the greatest technology that have ever been created. You look at the, you know, the development of Apple, and it's a paradigm within which they're also locked. It's working for them, but is it going to work forever? Time will tell, right? Because we've all bought into that paradigm, but how long does that last? And will we even realize it? And will they be willing to change at that point? We've seen this with great companies like Sony, for instance, when they were in the heydays of, remember the Walkman? Where's that now, right? So, so, you, so, so you realize these products also get into a lock-in of the, and, and today security is in a lock-in. Cybersecurity is in a lock-in where we're, where, where the talk about culture, the talk about users has been drawn to the peripheral. Now, one caveat there or one thing that I have to say is it's gotten better in the last five, six years. And I think part of the reason it's gotten better, what I mean by better is people are more open to talking about what you and I are talking about. People are more open to listening to the need to change security culture in organizations. It wasn't the case in 2014 when I was writing about this. In 2014, when I wrote about social engineering and spear phishing and Sony pictures, nobody cared much. In 2013 and 20, 2010, when I was studying social engineering, people in my university were laughing at me, calling me the phishing guy. It was the, the, the joke of the time was, what is phishing? Because everybody was studying social, uh, social media. Facebook was the thing that people were studying back then. And uh, I remember this conversation in a, in a conference where, you know, somebody asked me, why am I wasting my time doing this uh, when a spam blocker would come up and one day make all my work irrelevant? 
So has that changed? It has, right? We're talking about social engineering today uh, more than we ever did. We're recognizing the problem. And I think the bad guys out there are to thank for that because they've been relentless. So, okay, here's another question for you. Do you think as well that some of this is maybe because it's about financial gain? So what I mean by that is like that old saying, like, don't fix what's not broken. So if they, you know, if, if someone's acknowledging like, we don't need this or this is broken, that people are winning from this, right? People are selling things off the back of whether it's training, whether it's a product or a solution. So it's like, for example, selling diet pills. Just say I'm selling diet pills and I know it doesn't work. But if people are not questioning me on it, I'm not going to go out there and say, hey, they don't work or else I'm going to lose my revenue, yeah? So do you think there's a little bit of maybe selfish financial gain in this whole paradigm? Yeah, there is a lot of it, actually. Absolutely, there is a lot of it. In fact, the entire world of cybersecurity is run by vendors. You don't see academic institutions touting solutions, right? So for instance, uh, the entire cybersecurity world, you go to any, any security conference like Black Hat, I mean, it's a vendor conference for the Schwab. I mean, the vendor room is overflowing with vendors. Um, and, and the reason is that, you know, we have left security to the free market. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, but there are some things that, you know, capitalism is great. I love capitalism, right? There's some things that capitalism doesn't do well, right? Uh, astrology was a good example. Psychics are a great example, right? I mean, you don't want to leave that to the free market. Bad science is another one of these areas where I don't think the free market does. And that's what this is, right? These are products, like I said, and the products, once they're created, people who create it, want to make sure that that product is the only thing that's sold as the next big silver bullet out there. And we have yet to find one. And so, yeah, there is a huge profit motive behind keeping security awareness going. And security awareness, the use of security awareness invariably leads to you needing more security awareness. Every one of their pen tests basically tell you how much more pen testing you need to do. So it is a product, which is a license, which is a perpetual license. And like I said, Ask them when that would license it would stop. When would I not need that security awareness package? And there's no answer to that. And so this is why here, here you have a book which tells you, gives you the answer. So if you don't have a security awareness program, the book teaches you how to create one from scratch without needing to use a vendor if you don't want to. It teaches you how to create a pen test, how to do that pen test, and how to actually test uh, the awareness levels of your users and diagnose who's at risk and why. And if you do have a security awareness product right now, the book teaches you how to improve on what you already do. So you really can do it both ways. So, so, so what, what I'm trying to say with the book is, hey, we have vendors out there, which is great, but the product is inadequate as it stands right now and we can improve upon it. And there's a better way of doing it. There's in fact a right way of doing it. Now, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathroom. We can actually make this into a, a, a better adult. So one of the things I want to understand from you is for people listening, they're inspired by what you've said. What are some elementary sort of ways that people can start understanding human beings like as of tomorrow? Look, if you want to understand people, I, I dedicate, I, like I said, I've done, I've been an academic for 20 years, studying people for 20 years. I distill a lot of that knowledge in the book. In fact, I dedicated an entire chapter without getting too much into the science of it, in explaining how people use technology, right? You need to know this knowledge, right? So if you really want to understand your user, you have to begin with the right knowledge, right? Because uh, you need a framework to understand this, right? So for instance, remember, there's always these, these things that come out on the internet, which is, um, you know, this, you know, there's a hidden image, right? For instance, there's an animal, and they're like, oh, spot the five deer in the, in the, in the image. Uh, or sp spot the hidden animal in a, in a particular graphic. Uh, if you don't know what you're looking for, it's very hard to know what to look for. And without a f and once I show you the animal, your mind's going to then hone into that every time you see that particular image. So what you need is a framework, a framework that can orient you to understanding the user. Without the framework, you're basically just shooting in the dark. You're just looking at a screen and there's a bunch of images. So the first step is understand the user is to get the science behind cognition and behavior. Now, I have a whole chapter dedicated to it. 
You can do that. You can, of course, you know, go out there, you know, take a co- go take a course on uh, human psychology, human behavior. But a very simple way of doing it, read the chapter in the book. Once you understand what makes people do things online, whether it's risky things or safe, resilient behaviors, then the question is, how do you measure them? And again, in the weakest link, I discuss the measurement of which is, you know, how do you go out there and how do you measure those? And there's a certain science to it. There's a certain process to it. Uh, it's actually way easier once you understand it. It's like baking a cake, right? It only has five or six ingredients. But if you know when to put those ingredients, you'll get a cake. If you just start mixing them up and doing everything, you know, any which way you want, you're going to end up with something that's inedible. In the same way, you need a framework. You need to understand the science behind it. And you need to follow the steps that are laid out to doing this. So if you want to do this in your company, it doesn't cost you a lot to do it. It doesn't cost a lot in time, but you need to be in the right framework to understand this. You got to understand the right framework. And this is why I say, buy the book, read the chapter. We can talk about it. But basically, you have to be able to measure human cognition and human behavior. Right? You got to understand how people think, how they process information, what they believe in, and the kind of behaviors and habits they inhabit. And once you can measure those four or five things, then you can diagnose risk. Then you can understand users. You can understand them at a level in which nothing that we're doing right now can help you understand. Wow. Thank, thanks for sharing that. I think that's, uh, that's helpful for, for our listeners that want to get started on this. But I've got an interesting question for you, Arun, because you've studied people for 20 years and people at the same time uh, fascinate me as well as rattle me. So I'm curious to know, like, what do you like most about people? But then what do you sort of dislike the most about people in your research and two decades of understanding human beings? That's a great question. I don't think anybody has ever asked me that. Well, I'm glad. (laughs) I don't think anybody's ever asked. That is a great question. The thing that fascinates me about people is that no matter who we are or where we are, there's more similarity and overlap in the way we are all programmed, whether it's the way we think, whether the way we are motivated, and the way we behave and act, than we realize. In fact, I would go so far as to say that almost 80, and I would even go higher than that, 90% of most, or even 95%, most of our thoughts, behaviors, and I'm making a big distinction, cognition and behavior, and within cognition, how we process and the beliefs we have and how we act are actually very, very, very similar. What, what varies is the context in which we use them. So that similarity is, is really fun because it's very predictable. And when it comes to technology, that 80% similarity and overlap goes up to as high as 95 to even 98%. And I'll tell you why, which is why I study people as computing technology users. And the reason it's so high is because platforms all over the world are universally similar. So even though human societies are very different, right? I mean, Australians are different from, say, you know, Indians are different from Americans, even though we all sound speak English. Um, we have geographical differences. But when it comes to technology, you know, we're all using very similar browsers, very similar operators. There's more similarity in the, in the contextual conditions. There. Therefore, the predictability of our thoughts and actions are, are actually much higher when it comes to technology. And that's what fascinates me. It's, it's so much is so predictable uh, that people don't realize how predictable and how predictable their motivations are, for instance, how predictable their, their thought processes are, which is what makes risk assessment actually easier when it comes to technology. Uh, even though any engineer would say it's the opposite, that humans are probabilistic, stochastic, and unpredictable, it's actually the opposite of it. Uh, humans are unpredictable, I agree, but humans are unpredictable as human beings in everyday contextual life, not when it comes to technology risk, because you know, you're using an iPhone, presumably that is very similar to the iPhone I'm using. So it has already dictated or put in the boundary conditions on what you can do. Uh, and so you layer human similarity of thought processes on top of a platform that's already universally similar, and you get very high similarity, very high predictability. On the flip side of it, that is also what makes social engineering so capable and powerful. This is why you can have a social engineer sitting in India attacking you or sitting in you know, Russia attacking all of us anywhere in the world. 
because they're able to take advantage of the exact same processes and flip it around. They just flip that same thing around. You're using the same technology, so they're using the same vector. You use the same language, so they use the same vector. And because you're using, you're similarly predictable, regardless of if you're in Australia or if you're in the United States, I'm able to use the same hook to get people in. That's what makes this so fascinating. Okay, so here's another question for you. I probably know the answer to this. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe not you, but I think other people would do this. The amount of people that the phone is the last thing they look at, touch, whatever it is before they go to sleep. And the first thing that people look at when they get up in the morning, guarantee you, is that you, Arun? And I, anyone listening, it has to be you. And if it's not you, I want to hear if it's not you because that would, that would just blow me away. No, I think that's all of them. Including you? Yes. I kind of got the vibe that you'd be like, no, I wouldn't look at my phone because you know much about human beings. But yeah, that's absolutely right. Name a person out there. And if I think people are lying to you, like, oh, no, I get up and I do. No, someone said they don't look at their phone for an hour. I don't think so. I, I find it hard to believe that people are doing it because the phones are programmed to make you do it. 100%. There's a reason your alarm's on your phone today. So I think that it falls into the habits of people. I mean, there's 8 billion people apparently on the earth now. Yeah, and they're trying to make you sleep with your watch on you. No, I've got a watch. That's, that's beyond. So you, can sla- so you can quote unquote track your sleep, right? Humans have been sleeping, you know, since the time they were, you know, apes. Uh, but oh no, we now need to track our sleep, right? <laughs> so suddenly there's a new use case for wearing a watch when you're going to bed. Well, like it's a selling point. There you go. People are, buy- people are buying watches. They're doing these things, right? Now because they, they think they need to track it. Uh, I, and I did that once, okay? I, I, I'm guilty of doing that once recently. I just did it to say, you know, where's my sleep pattern? Yeah, I just wanted to see my sleep pattern. And, and guess what I learned? But guess what I learned? I mean, there was a thing, an interesting insight I got, which is that apparently the, 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 uh, somehow my, I had set an alarm for, I don't know, I wake up at a god-awful time, 4.30 in the morning, uh, because it's a great time to ride. So I wake up very early, and at 4.30, all my notifications started coming into my watch. So even though I was like trying to off my alarm, now I had every notification that hadn't come in through the night. And I was like, wow. Um, you know, and suddenly you're awake and suddenly you're, you're kind of back in that world of technology. And that was the first and only time I wore my watch to bed. And I was like, okay, I'm not back in my sleep. <laughs> yeah, so, so there you go. There's a habit. But I do. But I do check my phone. Everyone does. They're lying if they don't. They, people will check their phone before they look at their husband and wife. That's fact. That's right. But I'll give you another one about habits that most people don't know. Okay. I'll give you another one. All right. Now I wrote about habits. I hate to say this. I was one of the first people to write about technology habits, cellular phone habits, mobile habits, and social engineering, right? And my research was first to basically write about it, to find it, and to make it, you know, in peer reviewed research. Uh, and, and I'll give you one thing about habits that most people don't realize. If you want to see a habit at you know, everybody says, oh, and I get up in the morning, look at the phone. That's a great way to say it, but that's private behavior. I'll give you a public behavior of habit. Next time you're anywhere in an airport or even with your spouse or whatever, if you're in the car, pick up your smartphone and look at it and then put it down and look around you and you will notice that they will immediately pick up their phone and look at it. Why? Because they can't handle that you're just sitting there looking at them? It's no, it's something like almost like yawning. It's almost contagious. Oh, it's like infectious. Yeah, wow. It's it's contagious. What happens is you, you do this in the airport. You go you go to Starbucks. You just you know just go to Starbucks or a coffee shop, what have you. Uh, look at your phone, put it down, and look next to you. And that person, whoever it is, male or female, will look at their phone and put it down. I, there's there's a social signal that everybody sends, which is I have a phone too, or oh I have something to look at. So you're saying if you pulled out your phone and I saw you, I would then do it. But I think it's about awkwardness because no one wants to look at anyone. So they just go, oh, I'm just going to go on my phone, yeah? Yeah. It's either that, but why does your spouse do it? Or why is somebody sitting in the car next to you? Because I think it, it's just, it's habit. No joke. I watched something yesterday. It's ha- there you go. That's why I said, that's why I said it's a habit. I don't it's think you're habit. thinking about it. You're not. It's a non, which is the definition of a habit. It's a non-conscious behavior that's basically done because the technology exists. So here's the other thing that gets me. I saw something on television yesterday. I don't know if you know, have any research or stats on this. Apparently, as a human li- an average human lifespan, we will spend now in, this, uh, in our digital uh, world 17 years on our phone. 17. Wow. 17. 
I believe you. But then you spend like a quarter of your life sleeping. Yeah, but if you put screen instead of phone, screen time, I mean, that would be pretty much like 80% of your life, 35 of whatever years you have. It's like twice as much. Uh, I, I believe you. I believe that, Stan. Well, I thought about this the other day. If you're not looking at your phone, you're looking at your laptop. If you're not looking at your laptop, you're looking at your iPad. If you're not looking at your iPad, you're looking at your television. If you're not looking at that, you're looking at your watch. You can't get away from it. And I think sometimes my eyes hurt and then I'll watch television. Coming back to platforms, right? These are all platforms. There's a universality to them, which is kind of really bizarre, isn't it? Um, you know, whether you're in Sydney or whether you're in Dubai or whether you're in Singapore or whether you're in Adelaide, or whether you're in LA or you're in New York, doing essentially the same thing. Everybody's on some kind of YouTube, on a browser. Uh, everybody gets that smartphone experience. They all have TikTok of some sort or Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn. You know, there's a similarity of what you're doing. Everybody goes, now I don't mean you, but a lot of people do this, right? Uh, today, um, you go somewhere and your proof of going is the picture that you took, that selfie that you took in the place. It's like a proof, right? It's like, oh, you know, the number, and I, I live about 20, 30 miles away from Niagara Falls. And whenever people, I, I drive by it, I mean, you know, I see all these people taking selfies by it. I was like, wow, here is one of the wonders of the world. <laughs> You're taking a selfie. You miss most of it, but you captured it on the camera. Nothing wrong with that. All I'm saying is, wow, you know, we spend all our time not just on screens, but on looking at the world to a viewfinder, you know? And, and that's actually something that fascinates me quite a bit about how in our mark of achievement is basically social media. Uh, we, when we put it out there, our mark of doing something is basically social media when we put it out. Uh, you may, you know, people I know go far enough to, you know, Photoshop themselves in places. You know, remember on YouTube, there were all these kids who went nowhere, but but they put out these videos saying they were here and they were there, but really they were nowhere. They were just, you know, green screening the whole thing. Uh, well, if you have to do that, uh, what does it tell you about the human condition? <laughs> what does it tell you about the human condition? It's like we've gone way past uh, needing technology to being technology to, to basically just experiencing the world as technology. Well, I don't know anyone that's done that. Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't know. Maybe, maybe the Photoshop's so good, like even the face tune and like all these. You know what I mean? Like, it, that's why I'm always like, social media is pretty fake as well. Like, everyone's going to give the highlight reels. They're going to make them look the best in the photo. They're never going to put a bad photo up. But what in your research, in your time, rattles you the most about people as well? Well, what rattles me the most is the amount of non-conscious behaviors that people engage in. Right? See, the human mind is incredibly capable of doing some very complex things without thinking. And that's what worries me the most too, right? The more technology we have, you know, you, know, you, you look at the, uh, you know, new electric cars that are out there. All of them have huge monitors, uh, huge screens. Uh, and people are driving as they're doing all these other things. There's so many distractions, you know. What... And there's so many non-conscious things that we do. Like I always ask people when I give, when I give a talk, uh, you know, I ask them, you know, do you remember uh, how many, you know, stoplights or stop signs you stop at before you came? And most people cannot. They have to think about it. And even when they think about it, they don't remember. Because you do so many things almost non-consciously, right? Uh, and, and, and it's kind of fascinating because you're, you're essentially, when you drive or I drive or you walk on the street, you are leaving yourself susceptible to essentially every other person's non-conscious behavior going right. Isn't it? I mean, it, and, and somehow it all works though, right? Eight billion people and, and we're all like plowing into each other on our cars. But I know people who essentially are driving and texting and messaging. I mean, I'm, I've done it too. And I keep reminding myself, you know, that I shouldn't be doing it. And sometimes I do. I slip into it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm, I just did that. Uh, and, and this happens, right? And that's what boggles my mind, that we actually, uh, you know, we depend on everybody else getting it right, including ourselves. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I have noticed that. Sometimes I'm even driving. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like I didn't even notice. Like I was just so on autopilot. I was like, because I, I go the same way. 
I mean, that's what's different when you go to another country, you're a bit more aware of things because you haven't been there and you're opening your mind up a lot more. But like if you're just going around the same places you always go, you don't really think about it. You're not noticing other people or what they're doing. Right. When you go to a different country, you're in beginner's mind, right? Yeah, you're back to beginner's mind. But when you, the moment the human brain is so capable of automating stuff, and this is why I, I tell you, again, I go back to the book and what we, what I talk about in the book and what I help measure through the approach in the book is not just the conscious actions of people, but the non-conscious habitual behaviors as well, as well as the conscious thoughts behind. Remember, we think thousands of things, but don't enact all of them. And there are lots of things we do, which we never think about. And we need to capture both when it comes to any human behavior or any human action, be it in the real world and in our world, the cyber world. So we need to be able to capture the entirety of it. We can't just say, hey, you know what? Uh, let's only measure uh, all the clicks, right? Uh, so this is uh, one of the big issues that I have with big data today, right? All the big data approaches that are there depend on data that's basically collated from search engines or what have you. But all of this data is people typing in stuff. It's action data, behavioral data. That doesn't tell you how they are thinking. It just tells you what they're doing. Uh, but we think about a lot more things than we do, right? We go through thousands of thoughts, right? And we don't enact all of them. Uh, and so a lot of that cannot be measured with big data. And then there are also a lot of things that we do, which we don't think about, which is your whole world of habits. Uh, and we need to be able to capture that too. And so when it comes to cyber and cybersecurity, social engineering, uh, we need to understand, again, going back to, let's say, a phishing pen test that, let's say, somebody does out there, we need to be able to say, okay, what, why did this happen? Was this something that a person, let's say, Carissa, did Carissa do this thoughtfully? Did she think about this and then not know, which is a knowledge issue? Or did she not even think about it and just act, which is a habit issue? Or she thought about it, but you know what? She did it and therefore, or she avoided it, which is a conscious avoidance. Each of this gives you a different answer. Right? Or is this something she believed? Right? Is there a belief in her mind that makes her make a mistake? For instance, you know, I've done these surveys all over the world. In fact, I have a quiz coming out in a couple of days, uh, and I'll share that with you, where, where we measure this idea called cyber risk beliefs. Right? All of us, you, me, every one of the people, one of us who, who are on the internet who listen to this, uh, we have these beliefs about technology that we fall. Right? So let me ask you this. What do you think is safer, a PDF document or a Word document? What do you think is safer to open? Oh, like a, like a Google Doc or like a Word Doc type of thing, like Microsoft? A Word, yeah. So, so I send you, somebody sends you an email, and there's a PDF document or there's another one with a Word document. Which one is safer to open? From a security perspective, safer to open that. However, yeah. for someone- Which one? Though? The, the Google, Google Doc. No, not Google Doc. I'm giving you two. Oh, options. sorry, Adobe Microsoft PDF. Doc. Over a, a PDF, Microsoft doc? yeah, yeah. Which one? Microsoft Doc. Why Microsoft? Well, I mean, a PDF, it could be, you know, filled with malware or whatever. Like, you don't know, right? Um, but from a someone potentially changing something, you want a PDF because if it's just a Word doc, it's easy to change. Do you manipulate right. things? So it depends which way you look at it. All right. So, so when I've done this, this exact same survey in various parts of the world, Invariably, the answer always is that a PDF is safer to open. I'm not surprised, but they're probably not security people either. They're right. And, and the reason is exactly what you just said, right? They say that, hey, you know, I can't edit it, so therefore it's safe. So they make this, this, this cognitive leap from their experience with security or their experience with usage and the security of a document type. Right? We know it's flawed. You know it's flawed. Your answer was right on. I know it's flawed. But they don't. And that's called a cyber risk belief, right? A cyber risk belief is not always flawed, but these are beliefs that we all hold in our mind. And there are many such beliefs that even you hold and I hold and everybody who uses technology, even you know, Elon Musk holds. And these views about what's secure and what's not. What's safe to do and what's not. So some people will say, oh, you know, is an email client safer than using, you know, a web-based portal for accessing the same? Is a public Wi-Fi safe? 
He's a private Wi-Fi thing. He's a VPN thing. He's a, um, you know, he's SSL secure and so on. So there's, there's a lot of these beliefs that we form. And I have a, a measure that measures all of them, most of them that matter, the most important ones. Uh, and these risk beliefs also dictate what you do when you get a social engineering attack. Right, but they have a different impact. So notice that these are consciously done. So you may think about something and do it, but you may have thought about it wrong because you have a bad, a wrong, an inaccurate, flawed belief about it. So uh, we we have to measure those. And again, you know, in the weakest link, we talk. You know, I, I teach you how to do that, and it arms you with the knowledge to measure that. But again, you see how we form these ideas about technology are based on our limited experience with it, and. You, me, even as security people have a very limited experience with technology because today's computing technology is incredibly complex, right? What you see is just one end of a very large chain of process. So I'll give you an example. Um, every time, uh, you know, you get an email uh, from a listserv, there's an unsubscribe button in the bottom, right? There's a hyperlink that says unsubscribe to this email. Now, many of us say, okay, let's just hit unsubscribe and it unsubscribes. But what is to stop that unsubscribe button from leading us to a water recall? Nothing. Like a website? Exactly. It's just pure trust. Yeah, and habit. Right? It's the same. Yeah, and, and it's the same thing with essentially every graphical user interface that's there on the internet, right? That's there on computing technology. The send button doesn't really send an email out. It does a series of processes that you don't see. But we are programmed to think about that send button as send. Uh, a great example of how this can be used um, by the bad guys is, I, you know, I checked into a hotel uh, about two years ago, uh, three before the pandemic. So this is about three, four years ago in Washington, D.C. And when I checked into the hotel, um, they, the Wi-Fi login that they were asking for, uh, they, you know, asked you for your Gmail email address. And what was really interesting was it also asked you to enter your password. The only difference was the password was supposed to be the password to the Wi-Fi system. Do you understand what they did? So they, the, the, the uh, Wi-Fi login portal from the hotel asked you for your Gmail address and your password, but the password you were supposed to enter was theirs, not yours. And I went down and I asked the person, I, and I asked the person, how many people do you think entered their email password. And he was like, I have no idea. But I was like, wow, this is such a poor design. And, and then I took it back to my lab. I know, but I took it back to my lab and I recreated it. And out of uh, you know, 500 subjects, 70% of the individuals who participated in that study entered their, password, their email password. Because they didn't read it properly. They just like, oh, okay. They didn't think about it. They didn't think about what potentially this could do in terms of ramifications. No one stopped because it's a habit. No one stopped for a second and said, wait a minute, why would they ask me for my Gmail password? Because whenever you enter your Gmail credentials, you enter your password. Yeah, I would question it, but I question everything. I know, but you're in security. You, you've seen enough of it. Yeah, true. Everyone's guilty until proven otherwise in my books, but yes. That's right. And, and that's one of the primary measures, if you read the book, uh, because like we talk about this, right? primary measure is this measure that 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 helps you helps you pause right and it's this idea of are the is the individual pausing what is it that causes that pause and that is suspicion right did they become suspicious it's a primary measure that we use to ascertain whether or not this individual uh, is risk is going to be you know high or low in their risk threshold well, I think we could absolutely go on and talk about this for hours. I think this is interesting. I love understanding humans. I love talking to people like yourself about this. I love security. So thanks very much, Arun. Thanks very much for going through some of your theories, answering those questions, which are interesting, and sharing the synopsis about your book. Uh, we will be linking uh, the link to your book in the show notes. Uh, and of course, if you read it, uh, get in touch with Arun, tell him what you think, leave him a review on Amazon. And yeah, I can't wait to get you back to talk further about human beings and why we do what we do. So thanks for making time and thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much. It was a total pleasure and great fun. Thank you so much, Melissa. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. 
We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.